Well, how awesome would it be that God is fighting for you, right? I mean, that's what we're going to find in the book of Judges, is that these uh, leaders, Samson, Gideon in particular, God uses to teach the people how to fight against evil and how to trust in his promises. So if you've ever struggled with fear or anxiety, God's got some promises for you. Also, if you've ever wrestled with your cravings, man, I just wish I wouldn't keep wrestling with my lust or my anger or my self-centeredness. There's some incredible promises that God can fight for you as well. If you've ever been stuck in bitterness or felt like life or the universe or God has left you empty, God has some promises for you to fight against depression. And lastly, to fight for you when you're going through adversity like Job. So today we're going to look at four characters and four promises. Our first character is a man named Gideon. Now Gideon is one of the first judges that we're introduced to. And the key word or key phrase for Gideon is that Gideon fears. I mean, you'd think if you were going to pick a leader, uh, a general, um, somebody who motivated people, I don't think you would ever, ever, ever pick Gideon. Why? This guy is nervous. This guy is super, super scared all the time. He is like the knee-knocking guy. And his whole life, his whole career, where we find him through his journey with God, is constantly wrestling with fear. Fear of confronting patterns that his dad made. Fear of not having enough people for the challenges before him. Fear of whether or not he can be successful and really fearing failure. Gideon fears, but God uses him in an incredible way. Let's look together. What are some of the ways that we find God using Gideon? Well, the first scene, we find Gideon showing up and the angel of the Lord, which we've learned is a phrase used for God appearing in the Old Testament, the person we know in the New Testament's name is Jesus. So the messenger of the Lord, Jesus, appears to him And Gideon is scared to death. He is hiding out for the Midianites and he is knee knocking in a wine press, thrashing out his wheat. You would never thrash out wheat in a wine press. All the chaff would go into your lungs. You always did it outside on a mountaintop. But he's so scared of the Midianites and for good reason, he's in a wine press. So the angel of the Lord came while Gideon threshed wheat in the wine press because he's scared in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, already there's humor in the story. You got a guy scared to death hiding out in the closet and God shows up, You mighty man of valor. Uh, Who, me? Yeah, that's how God sees you. (laughs) I don't think you got the wrong guy. In fact, he so thinks that God's chosen the wrong guy He gives a whole series of tests to God. Hey, I'm going to put a fleece out, think like a a washcloth. And if the dew is wet, but the washcloth's dry, I'll trust you. It happens. So he flips it. How about the next time uh, this is dry and that's wet? Here's what happens. Gideon said to God, don't be angry with me. Uh, Just let me give you a test. I pray just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground, let there be dew. So God graciously uh, says he's with him, even though he fears. He then says, assemble an army. 
And he's got like you know, thousands of people against the Midianites, 30,000 people, and he is terrified it's not enough. And God says, you got a numbers problem. Yeah, I got a numbers problem. But God says, that's not the problem. You've got too many people. <laughs> I don't have too many people, I got too few. No, you're gonna take credit for yourself. So he cuts the army in half. Then he cuts it again. So the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many. They're too many for me to give the Midianites into your hands. The people are still too many. Oh my goodness, I was already scared with not having enough resources. Now I definitely don't have enough resources, Gideon might say. Well, the fear goes up. God continues to give him inoculations of more and more fear. So the Midianites and the Amalekites, all the people of the east show up. And they were lying in the valley. And Gideon's looking at the opposing forces. They were as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number and the sand by the seashore in multitude. It's a terrifying amount of circumstances. And he's like, there's no way I can do this. There's no way God can do this. So he sneaks into the enemy camp. And he listens into a tent. And he hears the Midianites talking about a dream one of them had. So Gideon came by and there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said, I had a dream. And to my surprise, a loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the camp of Midian. It came into a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream, its interpretation, he worshiped. What in the world's going on here with the barley loaf dream? What Gideon is realizing it's not about how many people he has or doesn't have. God's going to provide the victory. And by listening in, he realizes God is giving a dream to a group of people who are obsessed with dreams that they're already going to fail. God is working behind the scenes. God has promised to deliver him and to use him, and God is working it out. So literally Gideon and only 300 people take their torches, stick them in a pot, surround the Midian camp, And in the middle of the night, they break the pots, the fire's all around them, and they say, a sword for the Lord and Gideon. And the people wake up terrified, and they end up killing each other off, thinking their fellow brethren are the enemies. And this terrorist camp of the Midianites, who've done horrible, horrible things, end up being defeated by themselves because God provides the victory. So let's look at how God inoculates Gideon to fear through these promises that he's going to be with him. Why would God do that? Why would God take somebody who's already scared to death and struggles with fear, and rather than eliminating fearful circumstances, he keeps dialing them up? Why? Doesn't it seem like the opposite of what a good God would do? Except that God wants us to know that we can trust him regardless of the size of the fear. So if he can inoculate us to fear, we can all of a sudden not be overwhelmed by every little thing because we know that whether it's little or big, God is with us. It's kind of like allergy shots. I remember when I first moved to Cincinnati, I had allergies. Surprise, maybe you did too. Now what do they do when you get allergy shots, right? Well, the first thing they do is they test you. They prick your back with like a thousand little pinpricks. And then they take out a marker and they circle, you know. And they said, Chad, you're allergic to this mold and this mold and this mold and this mold. 
Like, wow, that sounds bad. What do we do about all these things I'm allergic to? I need to avoid mold, avoid you know, dust, uh, avoid kittens or whatever it was. I said, oh, no, no, no. What we're going to do is we're going to mix up all those things you're allergic to. Uh-huh. And we're going to take all those things you're allergic to and we're going to inject them into your skin. Say what? You're going to take the things that my body doesn't like and give me more of it? Yes. And if you keep coming over the next 18 months, each time you come, we're going to insert more of the things that you're allergic to into your body. Why would you do that? Because by doing that, you'll be building up immunity to the things you're allergic to. Exposure theory. Huh, sounded crazy. But that's exactly what God's doing here with Gideon. He's exposing him to increased amounts of fearful circumstances so that he can learn to trust God's promises. I was talking to Drew recently. He was talking to a buddy in a small group. And the guy in a small group started the conversation like this. Do you know the best thing about having a terminal disease? Everybody leaned in. No. What is the best thing? He said, I no longer live under the delusion that I can control people and circumstances. And I've finally been able to live a lot freer without the delusion that I think I'm really in control. And they listened as he began to explain how God was growing his faith through these horrific circumstances that he had hope and confidence in God. So let's go back to that promise that God gave Gideon back in that wine press. Do you remember what he said? The promise is that you can either see yourself the way God sees you or you can see yourself the way you see yourself. And Gideon saw himself as terrified and scared and not particularly strong. But God says, my promise is I want you to see yourself through my eyes, not through your own eyes. And God can say the same thing to you. What's God saying? What does God want you to know about him? He looks at you and you say, I'm an anxious person, I'm a fearful person. And God says, no, 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 no. In my eyes, what I'm gonna do with you, you are a mighty man of valor. You are a mighty woman of valor. What I'm going to do in you, I see who you're going to become as you trust my promises, not where you're currently sitting. Imagine the confidence you would have if you knew for sure, for sure, that God was with you. And in God's eyes, because of what he's going to do, you're a mighty person of valor, even in the moments that you're hiding out in the closet from the Midianites. So our first character is Gideon. Gideon fears. Our second character is Samson, who craves. He struggles with a craving for alcohol. He struggles with a craving for um, sexuality. He struggles with a craving for anger. In fact, he's angry most of his life, despite a pretty miraculous birth. So Samson's known for being a man of incredible strength, And he's primarily known, if you've heard his story before, for his incredible hair. He's got long hair that he never cut. So some people have thought, you know, oh, he's got like magic hair. But he he doesn't have magic hair. That's 
not the issue here. It's not magic hair. It's part of a promise he makes to God. So here we have Samson with these gigantic muscles. You know, he's clearly cut. Very, very strong. This is Samson. It as strong as he is and as powerful as he is, the one thing he can never overcome, the one thing he never has enough strength to beat is himself, his own cravings. Samson craves. Again, he craves lust, how he handles food, how he handles alcohol, and how he handles, handles his own sexual appetite become his undoing. He can take on a thousand men with a jawbone of a donkey and defeat them all, but he can never defeat himself. Samson craves. Now his parents struggled with infertility. They were barren. But the angel of the Lord, here comes Jesus again in the Old Testament, appears to them and has a promise. Here's what the angel of the Lord says. The angel of the Lord appeared to the, the woman, his, his mom. Indeed, now you're barren and you've borne no children. You shall conceive and bear a son. It's a supernatural son I'm gonna to give to you. Therefore, please be careful. He's never to drink wine. No razor shall come upon his head. For your child shall be a Nazarite, which is basically a person who promises not to drink, not to cut their hair, and not to touch dead stuff. It was a vow you could make to get close to God. And I'm going to use his life to begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now remember I told you that the time of judges is a time of up and down. So with Gideon, the Midianites had crushed them down and Gideon leads them out. Now the Philistines have crushed them down and Samson will begin to lead them out. Only, in general, Samson doesn't care. He doesn't care that his people are enslaved. He doesn't care that the Philistines burn people's houses, steal people's wives, steal people's daughters. He doesn't care. As long as it doesn't affect him. His whole life is about his cravings, not about serving the people God's called him to. So, we get to see his cravings play out when it comes time for him to get married. Rather than defeating the evil Philistines, he decides to marry one. He meets this beautiful woman from Timnah, a Philistine, and says to his mom and dad, get her for me. <laughs> I've seen a woman in Timnah from the daughters of the Philistines. Get her for me as a wife. How romantic. Ah, it's a wonderful Valentine's Day here with Samson and his wife. He goes to the wedding, a bunch of Philistines around him. But prior to that, he had fought a lion. A lion had tried to attack him on the road to the Philistine village. He'd wrestled this thing and ripped its open, its carcass laying there. When he traveled back home several months later, a group of bees had actually created honeycomb inside of this lion. And he so craves that honey, he reaches into the dead carcass of a lion and scoops out the honey and is just eating it there from the carcass of a multi-month-old dead lion, breaking the first part of his vow where he's not supposed to touch dead stuff. Then he heads to this, uh, this Timnah wedding party and he's drinking galore, breaking the second part of his vow. And he decides to kind of prove how smart he is. I'm not just all bronze, I'm smart too. He gives him a riddle. Out of the eater came something sweet. Talking about the lion. They can't solve the riddle. So all of the Philistines there begin to pressure his wife-to-be, 
you tell us the answer to the riddle or we're going to burn you, burn your house, destroy everything. They said to Samson's wife, entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us or we will burn you in your father's house. Have you invited us here in order to take what is ours? Is, is that not so? Samson said, after he found out that they had lied and threatened his wife, fine. He goes and kills 30 Philistines to grab their shirts and coats to give them to these wedding guests. Then he takes a bunch of foxes, ties torches to their, to their uh, a rope behind their legs and tails, and lets them run through the fields of the Philistines. Well, now the Philistines are mad. Because Samson didn't care the Philistines were mean to other people, but now he cares because it's affecting him. So Samson went and caught the 300 foxes. And now he gets attacked by the Philistines. He takes them on with the jawbone of a, of a donkey that he finds. And he, he finally starts to go about doing what God had for him, which is stopping the terrorist attacks of the Philistines against God's people. But the Philistines are out to get him. And they know the way you take Samson down is through his cravings. And they knew this guy craves a lot of alcohol and he can be enticed by women. So they get a local, probably prostitute, because Samson's been going to a prostitute for many, many years now, and they get one named Delilah to entice him. What's your secret? So afterwards it happened. He loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up and said to her, entice him, find out where his great strength lies. And that's exactly what she does. She finds out that he's kept one part of his vow, never cutting his hair. They end up cutting his hair, they gouge out his eyes, and for years they put him before their gods and say, this is the mighty Samson. Their god is defeated, their champion is defeated. And we find Samson walking around a circle, tilling the grain for the Philistines, thinking that God's abandoned him, a total loss of a life, a man who gave into his cravings his entire life. Except that God has promises for those of us who struggle with our cravings. And I think for some of us, it might be the cravings of how we handle food or how we handle lust or how we handle alcohol. Or it might just be our craving to handle chaos. Like how do I deal with the chaos in my life? I medicate it in different ways. And yet God has something better, a promise. I was talking to my friend Kevin And during all the chaos of the last year, business-wise, relationship-wise, he's been just digging into the Bible and finding God's been giving him the power through his promises to deal with the chaos of life. In fact, he started a neighborhood Bible study with several friends. They have dinner together, and they just read through the Bible. And many of his neighbors have never read the Bible, never really cracked it open before. And they said, boy, I'm so anxious with all the chaos in the world I come here on Wednesday nights or Thursday nights and just reflecting on these promises help me deal with my craving for peace in the middle of chaos. This is so much better than the ways I've been overeating, overstressing, etc. So let me show you this promise that God gives Samson because it might be a promise that you want as you deal with your cravings. It's the idea that God can fight our battles for us. When they take Samson and they put him there between these two pillars in that Philistine temple. He says, God, I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. I've lived a selfish, self-centered, craving life. But God, I need your help. And look what he says here in Judges chapter 16, verse 28. 
Then Samson, despite all he's done wrong, called out to the Lord saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God. That's exactly what God does. God strengthens him and that day when he's paraded before all the Philistines with his eyes taken out, God uses him to bring the the strongest victory that day, even blinded, against his enemies because he trusted in God's strength. So Gideon fears, Samson craves, but during the time of Judges is a little love story and embedded in this love story is our third character, Naomi. And Naomi embitters and yet God loves her in the midst of her depression and her challenges. Now you may not have heard of Naomi before. She's settled in this little love story about Ruth and Boaz, but it's about a woman struggling with depression and bitterness because of difficult circumstances and how God works works in the midst of it. And what Naomi would tell you is that her life used to be great. It used to be very, very full. However, it's now very, very empty. And you know who's to blame for her life being so empty? God. God has treated her very, very poorly, has allowed her to go through things that a mother should never go through, that people should never have to endure, and she's gotten very, very embittered. Naomi is embittered because of what life has done to her. Have you ever felt empty? Ever felt embittered? A famine strikes the land, destroys their business. They then have to move to another part of the country named Moab, start over. If that's not bad enough, her husband dies, Elimelech. So now she's grieving. She's grieving the loss of her husband, the loss of her business, the loss of all her friends, living in a land she doesn't know. She has two sons, Malon and Chalon, and they marry women from Moab, Moabites named Orpha and Ruth. And then both of her sons die. She's a widow, and now she's a widow who's lost two adult sons. She and her two daughters-in-law are just grieving. Just grieving. Why would God allow this to happen to me? So Naomi decides to head back home, or at least she had some friends years ago. And Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law says, I'm going to go with you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. And your God will be my God. And she stays with this very embittered mother-in-law. And what do I mean by embittered? I mean, she changed her name from Naomi, which means pleasant, to bitter. Like she asked people to call her bitter. Let me show you. She shows up back home and all of her kind of old friends are like, oh, look, Naomi's here. And they arrived in Bethlehem. The whole town was stirred because of them. Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitter in Hebrew, because the Almighty God has made my life very bitter. And the whole rest of the story is how Ruth continues to love a very bitter, very depressed person. She goes to the field every day to get food for them. The guy who owns the field, a business leader named Boaz, takes a liking to her, continues to allow her to go through the the field and to pick up what's left over from the reapers. He then begins to tell them to purposely drop extra to provide for her. 
She keeps coming home week after week and month after month. And Naomi is struck how God is providing for her through her daughter-in-law. Well, Boaz and Ruth fall in love. And they end up getting married. And at the end of the book, just four quick little chapters, Naomi is there as Ruth is having a baby. And what strikes her the most is that the God she thought had abandoned her and given up on her, God had showed his care and love and concern to her in her bitter, angry, depressed state through a person in her life named Ruth. See, God often does that. He shows his love for us even when we're bitter and depressed through the people around us who care for us, who provide for us and love for us. But God gives her an incredible promise as she's sitting there at the bedside of her daughter-in-law, now married to Boaz, having a child. And here's the promise. God promises whatever you've been through, whatever you're going through, to nourish and restore. Isn't that good news? If you've ever been discouraged or overwhelmed by circumstances, and who wouldn't after this last year? Wouldn't it be great to hold on to the promise that God can nourish me, grow me back to, to health, and he can restore the loss of happiness or joy? Here's what it says in the last few verses of the book of Ruth. Blessed be the Lord. Naomi's happy again. She's sensing God is with her again. He has not left you. These are the maidservants talking to her about the birth of the child. Who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name, this name of this child be famous in Israel. And he will be. And may he be to you as a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Then Naomi took this child and cared for him. And they named him Obed, for he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David, King David. His name and his family line becomes famous. He becomes in the, the bloodline of King David, who's in the bloodline of the ultimate Messiah and King Jesus. And that's why this whole book points to Jesus. Jesus wants you to know that he can be your nourisher and your restorer. No time seemed more bleak than Jesus being on the cross. Yet God used even the cross to restore forgiveness and restore hope to mankind. That's why people wear little crosses around their neck today. A reminder that God can restore something that was evil can be used for good. Do you need a promise like that? You discouraged or depressed? Write that promise down. God, I'm trusting you to be my restorer and my nourisher. And the person of Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this Moabite woman, not even Hebrew, who trusted God to care for a very embittered mother-in-law. Which brings us to our last character, a character named Job, who's quite famous. Now Job demands. He demands from God an audience. But the real theme of the book of Job you might think of it as a boomerang. It's the idea of karma. That when you do good, you get good. And when you do bad, it comes back to you. But here's a guy who is good. And bad things boomerang back to him. And there's a giant debate in the whole book as to whether or not bad stuff is always your fault. Is it your fault your kids die? Is it your fault that your business died? The Bible's going to say emphatically, no. Karma, the doctrine of retribution, the doctrine of boomerang does not explain the universe. 
Because sometimes good things happen to bad people, and sometimes bad things happen to good people. How do we explain that? Well, the story opens with the top stage and the bottom stage. In heaven, God is looking down with his angelic beings and saying, look at Job. Let's see how he handles adversity. He's about to go through a very difficult time. And it's difficult. How difficult? In one day, he loses his business. In one day, all of his children are killed off through raiders. In one day, he loses his business. He loses his money. Everything is flushed. And the angels are looking down, and God is looking down. How will he handle this horrific adversity? And it says, he looks up to heaven and says, blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives and he takes away, and he worshiped. Then sickness strikes him. He now has boils all over his body. And now it's like, well, let's see how he can handle when sickness is striking him. And again, we see Job trusting God That he's willing to accept good and bad, not based on what he's done, but just based on trusting that God knows best. Pretty amazing. Job arose. He tore his robe. He's still grieving. It hurts. This is painful. he's, He's grieving. He shaved his head, a sign of mourning. He fell to the ground and worshiped. The Lord gave. I didn't deserve it when he gave it to me. And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all of this, Job did not charge God with wrongdoing. However, his friends show up. His friends begin to say, Job, you know why your kids are dead? Because you did something wrong. You sinned. Can you imagine that? Saying that to someone? Job, you know why your business failed? Because you're a failure. You know, Job, the reason why these bad things happen, the universe is angry at you. Karma, the universe is paying you back. Imagine every time you've had a bad circumstance, the answer to that is, it's your fault. That's what karma teaches. And Job's friends will basically be pounding him with karma for chapter after chapter after chapter. And Job will say, listen, I don't know what's happening. It's horrible. It's terrible. But one thing I do know is it's not that I did anything wrong. I'm not perfect, but there's no correlation between these circumstances and my actions. Like, nah, you don't know what you're talking about. And yet the one thing that Job does do wrong is he constantly demands God answer for himself. So in the middle of their debate, here's what he says. He gets struck with these painful boils He says, shall we not accept adversity from God? But then he says, but God ought to show up here and explain himself. Here's how he says it. Have pity on me, God. Have pity on me. Oh, you my friends. Why don't you have pity on me too? Stop lecturing me. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does? This is many, many days later. After he originally said he would receive adversity. Are you not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, look what he demands. An audience with God. Oh, that my words, the things I'm saying, were written down in a book. Huh. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book so people knew what I was going through and could see that it wasn't karma. It wasn't my fault. That they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and led forever. Then he says, for I know that my redeemer, the person who can buy back my pain, 
who could one day, whether it's heaven or eternity, reward me for what I'm going through. I know that my Redeemer lives and he shall stand at last on the earth. There's an old song called My Redeemer. And at Easter, we talk about Jesus coming to redeem the earth and God himself came to stand on earth. And Jesus even references Job in his teaching. He demands an audience from God. That's exactly what God gives him. Despite the adversity, God never explains why the bad stuff happens. He says, Job, I'm going to use your story to inspire others for generations. And he gives him a promise. In fact, the promise is pretty satisfying because the promise involves confronting his, his loudmouth friends and saying this to him. Pretty, pretty neat. God promised that he is with us even when it feels like the world is against us. He pretty much shows up and whistles, you know, out, out of the pool, out of the pool, come here, I want to talk to you. For you have, talking to his friends, you have not spoken of me, God's talking here, what is right, as my servant Job has. You've been talking karma. He's saying sometimes we don't understand. He's talking right. Go to my servant Job, you friends who got all, everything figured out, and offer up for yourself a burnt offering. You're in the wrong, not him. And my servant Job will pray for you. The guy you've been condemning, the guy you've been lecturing, he will pray for you because he's the one who gets it. For I will accept him lest I deal with you according to your folly because you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. There's gonna be times you don't get it. I don't get it. And this side of eternity, we're never gonna know why we're experiencing pain. But God has a promise that he's with you. Even when the world is against you, when it feels like nothing makes sense, God says he can buy back, what's what redeem means, buy back your pain. He can say, I've been watching when you didn't think I even cared been watching how you handle this and I'm with you and I care and you're right it doesn't make sense and I I can't even explain it to you but one day I'm going to redeem all that pain I'm going to buy back all that pain I'm going to make all that pain make sense three or four months ago I was dropping off my car to get some tires swapped in the middle of that I, I grabbed an uber to go back home and the lady seemed a little under the weather so I'm like hey what's going on she said, oh, not much. I said, tough day? She said, yeah. So what's happening? She said, I just found out my sister has pancreatic cancer. And she started to cry. I said, well, tell me more. And just as we drove back to my house, just that simple question opened up a lot of pain, a lot of questions. We stopped in front of my house, and, and I just felt God prompting me to lean in and say, hey, um, are you a person of faith or prayer? She said, yeah, a little, maybe, I don't know. I said, well, would you mind if I prayed for you? She said, please, and can I pray for your sister? Suddenly the simple Uber drive turned into a moment of trying to invite God's promises into a very dark circumstance. I got done praying her in the back, for her from the back of the Uber, and she said, thank you so much. I really, I don't think anyone's ever prayed for me. That meant so much to me. We had a couple who's been attending Horizon for the last four or five months, even during COVID, even during all these challenges. And it's during that time they sent this incredible note. The husband passed away just about a month ago. 
And they said, our faith was so revitalized, finding horizon during COVID, coming, learning about the Bible. We have never felt so encouraged, never felt so infused with promises and joy. And even as my husband was facing death, I got to tell you, he was so alive with God's promise that Jesus was the ultimate redeemer that defeated death for him. And we are so grateful for God's work through Horizon. It's just so encouraging what God's doing in and through us. He's doing in through you. I mean, whether you're serving, whether you're giving to what Horizon is doing here, it's taking people through the Bible and helping people find handles of promises from God they can grab hold of during difficult times. So I'd like you to, to pick a promise. Pick a promise that will keep you on track or pick a promise if you're currently off track. Do you struggle with fear and anxiety? Would you let God say to you, you are a mighty person of valor through my eyes if you'll trust me for your identity? Do you struggle with cravings? The God would say to you, hey, you pray God strengthen me and I will strengthen you no matter what you've done. I will be with you. You struggle with depression or bitterness? Maybe you need that promise that God will nourish you or restore you. Or lastly, Maybe you're going through a very difficult Job-like season of your life. In fact, as the band comes and, and plays this next song, I'd like to pray for you that God would give you the promise that he is with you, that he will accept you, that you could accept from him what's happening and you could trust that he's your redeemer, that he will buy back this pain one day. You can't understand it now, but you're saying, God, I'm gonna trust that you get it. I'm going to reject the, the guilt of karma and condemnation and trust that somehow you're going to bring purpose to something that has no purpose. Let me pray for you as, this, this, as God draws near to you during whatever times you're going through. Father, many people here today don't know how to carry on and they don't know how to persevere, but they want to. And God, you have the resources they need so God, empower them, encourage them, fill them up where they are empty. Allow them to know that you are God. In Jesus' name, amen.